Let's uh, let's take the Word of God again and open it up, and this time to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read 17 through 23. Before I read, I just want to, I want to be straightforward and honest with you this morning. What we see this morning, the truth, the reality, is that a man died, and after his death, he walked out of his own grave. And the thing that I need us all to consider, what do you do with that? What do you do with the reality that the tomb is empty? And for some of you, might you might be thinking it is nothing but a myth, a legend, a story, a fairy tale. Well, if that's our outlook on it, then there is nothing that you will do with the resurrection of Christ. But there is hope that the Spirit of God will show you The reality that a man died and three days later rose from the dead never to die again. If you knew someone like that, don't you think it would be important to listen to him? And that's what I want you to have on your mind and your heart today. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years For five minutes, or you stand in your unbelief, the tomb is empty. Now let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verse, we'll begin in 15 and read to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of the revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to come, the hope to which He has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of Him who fills all and all. A brief prayer. Father, take Your Word and plant it in our hearts. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from Your law. Do this in the power of Your Spirit for the glory of Your risen Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So if we start at the resurrection, we start at the end of the story, right? We understand this. We understand that the story did not begin on Sunday. Um, And one thing I don't want to take for granted is that you know the story. And so it was a long, long time ago. The beginning of the story begins over 2,000 years ago. Uh, a, a, A man was born. A baby was born, born of a woman, a virgin. It was a miraculous conception. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. This young lady was visited by an angel, and in her interaction with the angel, the angel claimed, proclaimed, that the baby she would conceive would be God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And he gave the baby a name, Jesus, because the angel said he would save his people from their sins. The baby was the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This baby grew up to be a young boy. And Luke tells us he increased in wisdom and stature in the favor of God and man. Ultimately, the boy grew up to be a man, lived his entire life without sin. Tempted in every way, like you and me, even tempted directly from Satan himself, yet never falling short of the glory of God. He was a perfect man, fit to be a perfect Savior. About the age of 30, he began his vocational ministry. He was a traveling preacher, and he went around his area preaching a message. And you could hear him proclaim with authority. He would say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But he preached in such a way that astonished the crowds. Because they'd heard people speak of the scriptures They'd heard them say it as if they were repeating what was written. But as he came, this man whose name was Jesus preached as one who had done the writing. He was delivering his own message. He preached as the author. Not a proclaimer of someone else's message or story. But along with his words, he didn't just preach, but he did many signs and wonders and miracles. He healed He commanded the elements of nature, and he even forgave sin. And at the peak of his ministry, you could fit into one or another crowd. You either loved him or you hated him. And the crowd that loved him followed him. Some of them loved him so much, and maybe not in the correct way, to want to force him to be king then and there. But then there was the other crowd, the crowd who hated him, and they hated him so fiercely 
that they desire to put him to death, to end his life. But here's where the story makes a weird turn. Because this man, this preacher, Jesus, the chosen one, the Messiah, his desire, his will, lined up with the desires of those who hated him. Jesus would tell his disciples, his closest followers, that he must go to Jerusalem, the headquarters of those who hated him. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from those who hate him, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed by those who hate him, and on the third day be raised. And this just didn't make any sense to the disciples. And he, he didn't give any help when he would say the things like this to them. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so he pointed himself towards his enemy, towards his death. And I'm sure you all are aware that last week, Holy Week, Passion Week, we commemorate his destination, his arrival to the place of his death. And it began last Sunday in Palm Sunday when he entered in Jerusalem with a great triumphal entry as Jesus rode into this city, to the city of his death. The crowds gathered and in agreement with the angel that proclaimed to his mother that he would save his people from their sins, in agreement they shouted, Hosanna! Which means, save us, we pray. And they called him son of David. Acknowledging what the angel had told his mother. That he was the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the chosen one of God. And if you were here with us Friday night, you know that we considered the final day of his life what we call Good Friday, the day of his death. To shorten the story, let's make our way back to Acts 2. We'll come back to Ephesians in a minute. But to help shorten the story, we're going to use Peter's words to describe that day. And not just that Friday, but that Sunday. Acts chapter 2. Looking in verse 22, Peter takes up before a crowd, a large crowd in Jerusalem, the city where he had just been put, Jesus had just been put to death. And again, this is post-resurrection, post-ascension. Peter's giving the first sermon. Verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice, Peter, what he says. What this man did while he was alive, you saw it. He was no ordinary man. His works, his wonders, his signs, mighty they were. You saw the things that he had done when he was among you, but instead of 
that driving you to follow him, he tells them it drove you to hateful passion and envy and it drove you to murder him. It drove you to pawn off that murder upon the Romans to crucify him. But Peter would say two things in this sermon, in this address, that would shock his audience. It should shock any audience. The first thing he says was in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. While this was the scheme that the the high priest and the Pharisees had schemed together in their wickedness, and that they used Pilate and his soldiers, their, their hired guns, to crucify and kill Jesus. He wanted them to understand this, that this was the will of God. Amen. When you delivered up Jesus, Peter says, when you delivered him up to be crucified and killed, you were doing the will of God. For you delivered him up according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Now I want to take a moment on a little rabbit trail. Too many of us walk around this world thinking we are in charge. Too many of us think that we have brought God into our lives. Too many of us think that God should be proud that I came to celebrate this Easter festival. But what we must understand is that God is the one who is in charge. God is doing something. God has been doing something since before the foundations of the world. He is building a kingdom. He is working out his plan that he had began from before a star was hung in the sky. And in his good pleasure, if you are involved, it is because of his grace and mercy and love towards you. He has called you to participate. He has shown mercy to you, a sinner, by faith in Jesus Christ. He has called you to be a saint and given you the gift of faith and repentance. And he's removed from your your flesh a heart of stone and given you a heart that lives and loves Christ. Let us not mock God. As we say in our hearts and minds and sometimes even out loud... I'm in charge here. I'm in control of my own destiny. We have to understand he is the potter and we are the clay. We see later in Acts, Paul tells the Athenians, For the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted uh, periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. What we must do is we must humble ourselves. We must be humbled by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God in sending his own son to save us from our sin. For he sent him to live the life that you and I can never live. A life of righteousness. 
Yet he died the death that we deserve and delivered us from the wrath of God that is to come. And yes, it is coming to all of the unrighteous. But that's the first shocking thing that he said. But the second shocking thing you could imagine, he said these words, God raised him up. And he follows it up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you understand what Peter is saying here? A man was dead. Three days later, he stood up and walked out of the tomb. He was dead. Now he's alive. The angel proclaimed, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. One more side note. We have a I think we have a tendency to have a problem with this because we tend to not think much about the resurrection. And it's because we know our Bibles, actually. If we know our Bibles, we know that other people were dead and then raised. Lazarus was he was dead longer than Jesus was. And do you know that at the crucifixion, when Jesus breathed his last breath, tombs opened up and dead men came out of the tombs and walked among the people. And so we're like, what's the big deal? Everybody else is doing it. Here's the difference. Jesus is still alive. All of those others died again. I heard a preacher say once, those resurrections were just resuscitations. They came up from the grave, lived for a little while, went back into the grave. But when we speak of resurrection in the scriptures, we speak of never to die again. For Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, and he is still there today. In the body, in the glorified flesh, never to die again. And how about the last resurrection? Yes, you and I, Christian brother and sister, will join our elder brother, the firstborn of the dead, in a resurrection like his, raised imperishable, never to die again. But yes, Peter tells them, this Jesus whom you crucified is alive. And then later in verse 32, he says, this Jesus raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. And you understand that the witness, the testimony of Peter and all of those who saw Christ in his resurrected body held on to the truth of their witnessing of him to the point of death. They took the truth of witnessing the resurrected Christ to be executed, to be beaten, to be stoned, to be crucified upside down, ready to give up their bodies, knowing that they they were united to the death of Christ, and in the same way, we're united in the resurrection of Christ. So they gave up their bodies because they knew there was a better one awaiting them. 
But if you look at 33, it's this next statement. It's this next statement that I want to consider the rest of our time together and will shift us to Ephesians. And we won't be we won't be here much longer. Here's what I want you to understand. Let me read verse 33, at least the first bit of it. We'll start in 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. We have to understand this, beloved. The truth of the resurrection is the foundational fact Christianity either stands or falls. Okay? The, Paul writes to the church in, the, in Corinth, and we read it before Sunday school class, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's vain, it's worthless. You're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning there's no resurrection, we are people most to be pitied. The fact that Jesus is no longer still in the grave is what makes Christianity Christianity. But the resurrection is more than just an empty tomb. Hear me. It's a very popular preaching line to speak about the fact that Muhammad is still in the grave or Buddha is still buried and so on and so forth, making a contrast to the empty tomb of Jesus. And this is true and it's a great preaching point, especially on Easter, speaking about the resurrection, but the point doesn't go far enough. There are divine realities and implications that came out of the tomb with Jesus. And Peter begins to touch on it in verse 33 when he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. The realities that came out of the tomb with Jesus are realities that affect all things created. These realities demand a response from all creatures made in the image of God in this world. These realities also give encouragement and life to the church. Let's turn to Ephesians 1 and let's see these realities that came out of the tomb with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in 20. And as we look at verses 20, 21, and 22, understand that this is in the context of Paul just mentioning about the power and might of the resurrection of Christ. He says, when he raised him from the dead. Look at verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Right? So we're speaking about the resurrection. And the reality of, these, the, reality of the resurrection starts after that. Because he says... In Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and... And here follows these three realities that came out of the grave with Christ. Here are the three... I'm going to give you three words, and we're going to hit on them real fast. So write these down in the side of your Bible, and your notes, whatever you have. Three words to help us remember the realities that came out of the tomb. Seated, sovereign, subjection. Seated, sovereign, subjection. Look at verse 20 again. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in the heavenly places. Same language as Peter, right? What we saw in Acts 2. Not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he took him up to the highest position of power in all of heaven and earth. And of course we know that Paul would say somewhere else that God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. For there is no one in heaven or on earth that holds more power than Jesus Christ. He's seated at the right hand. The right hand alluding to the hand of power. Now, that's seated. He's seated in power, but now we see that he's sovereign. Verse, tw- uh, verse 21 gives us the details of showing where his power goes and what authority it gives him. He's seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There are none with more rule, authority, power, and dominion than Jesus Christ. Now most take this to to speak to the spiritual realm of angels and demons, and I have no reason to disagree with that. But it's made very clear, even in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, throughout all the scriptures, that Jesus has control, rule, authority, and dominion over the demons. For we saw him in the scriptures as he approached a demon-possessed man. And the demon then, in terror, says, no, no. Calls him the Holy One of God and says, no, no. Don't don't get rid of us now. Don't throw us into the pit now. Jesus has all power over all spiritual darkness, all spiritual rule and authority and dominion. And therefore, man shall not be afraid, but shall stand under that rule and authority. But very much so, and I think this is harder for us. We, it's easy for us to talk about the unseen. But what really gets us is admitting that Jesus has all rule, authority, and dominion over all things upon this earth. Including yourselves. Your money. Your career. Your children. Your house. Your cars. This isn't just restricted to the spiritual realm, but Jesus' power is over all earthly rules and authority. Presidents, governors, mayors. We know this is true because of the scripture says. And just in case you aren't sure how far that authority and power and dominion run, he says, it is above every name that is named. Now we might say that in this way. You might say, oh, so-and-so is the best back catcher ever to play the game of baseball. And someone's arguing with you and go, name someone who's better. Name them. Come on. Let me hear it. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. He's like, name someone, whether in heaven and on earth, who has more rule, authority, and power, and dominion than Jesus Christ. Him who walked out of his own grave. For there is no one in heaven and on earth that can be named 
He's covering all of his bases. But again, I think a point we need to understand is he says that Christ has this power, rule, and authority. He is sovereign ruler in this age, but also in the age to come. We tend to look past this age. We tend to think about Jesus as king in his coming kingdom at the end. But again, we forget that he is sovereign ruler and reigns now. Amen. Now, today, in this life. And we are his. We are his servants in this age. Not, I, I will serve the Lord greatly on the day of his return. If you are not serving the Lord greatly now, there will be no service on the day of his return. And if all these are true, which they are, is seated at the right hand of power, he's the sovereign ruler of all things, then it is inevitable of what he says in verse 22. And God put all things under his feet in subjection to Jesus. It means all things are his subjects. Kiddos, you watch, you think about kings and kingdoms, and what do kings have in their kingdoms? They have subjects, they have people who live underneath them. And in the kingdoms with kings and subjects, what do the subjects do? They honor and obey the king. Verse 22 says that everything is subject to the king. Amen. Every stream, every lake, Every river and the depths of the oceans are subject to Christ. Every puppy, every chicken, every deer, every dinosaur is subject to the authority and rule of Christ. Every human being is subject to the rule of Christ. There's a Dutch theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Abraham Kuyper, and I think he got it right when he said this. There is not a square inch and the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is our sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Amen. And what is the only response to such a sovereign ruler? Humble submission. Humble submission. And you may be apt to think, well, who does he think he is? He's the only man to walk out of his grave and to never die. Listen to me, everyone. Little ones, kiddos, moms and dads, young and old, I want you to hear me as we close. We must draw a line in the sand this morning. But the, the, the line we draw... Is not my line, but is drawn in the sand by Jesus. And that line is, you must believe in this story that I've told you this morning. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is sent in this world to live a righteous life and die a sacrificial death for your sin. And after being buried, He was raised from the dead on the third day. 
But I want to tell you something that I you might have never heard from a pulpit. If you are to cross this line by faith and believe in this story, the very first thing that you do as you cross is you bow the knee before him in submission and call him Lord. You are the king and I am your humble servant. I will obey your word, your commands. I will follow you all of my days. That is what the king deserves. You cannot say I'm a subject of the king and I'll listen to your orders and your edicts, king, sometimes when it's convenient for me. When you cross the line, Drawn by the resurrected king, you understand he is the one you must listen to. He is the one with all the answers. He is the one that you give your life to, whom you look to for marriage counseling, whom you look to for how to raise your kids, whom you look to to surrender the truth of the regards of all life is sacred and sanctified, whether alive or or not yet born. You surrender your money, your house, your finances, your wealth, your cars, your land, your cattle. It is all His. He has given it to you. You say, do with it as you please. You trust His words regarding all things. He walked out of the grave. You must listen to Him. That's saving faith. Not not walking an aisle or praying a prayer or signing a card or getting baptized. The saving faith is trusting with Him of your whole being, acknowledging Him as Savior and Lord and crying out to Him as Thomas did, my Savior and my God. My Lord. Now, church, there are three realities that came out of the cross or came out of the resurrection that came out of the tomb. And I won't keep you, but they're hope, riches and power. Ephesians 1, 16, 17, 18 tell us these things. We have hope. Because we have surrendered our life to King Jesus. We've surrendered our life to the one who said he will die and raise from the dead. And guess what? He did. This is the way God works. Death to resurrection. Humility to exaltation. So we have hope in our calling. That if we are willing to give ourselves. Our selfless. Our lives in a selfless manner. Living a life worthy of the calling. That we might suffer. We might lose out on some things. We might die. But death leads to resurrection. We have hope in it. The riches we receive, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, as as said in Ephesians chapter 1, He has raised us to the heavenlies with Him. He has placed, God has placed us with Christ as loyal subjects, we share in his reward. All things are his, and so we are united in his inheritance. 
we have received him and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But on the day of the resurrection, those heavenly blessings will become new earth blessings. One day creation will be made new and we who share in Christ will share in ruling over this earth with him. The church receives hope and riches and finally power. Look what he says. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It takes no divine power to walk around this world in unbelief. You do that on your own. It takes no divine power ignoring the rule and authority of Jesus. But to submit to this calling of following him, hearing and doing his word is a supernatural act of God. And it is done by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power resides in you. To be a saint in Jesus Christ is to be filled with immeasurable greatness and power of God in order that you might walk in a newness of life. That you might walk in a spiritual resurrection. And in doing so, you give glory to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be all honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. So I ask you again as we leave. What do you do with this? What do you do with the resurrection of Christ? If you've got any questions about that, you talk to me. You ask me. If you need prayer, come and let me know. But all of us will stand accountable on the day. When we look at Him... The resurrected king, nail-pierced hands and feet and a side. Then we will know. And for some, we will rejoice and cry and worship and sing and praise. But for others, death. Death eternal. Look to the crucified, risen Lord today. And if you've said that, if you've made that confession, but you have not lived in submission to him, your confession is nothing. It's just words. Lip service to a king in order that you might not die. But for those who have been given life by the king, we are ready to die. Let's pray. Father, receive what we have heard today. Let your word go forth and draw us nearer to him. Help us to live this newness of life. For we know that we have 
been united with Him in death, and we shall be united with Him in His resurrection. For His sake we ask all these things, pray all these things, sing all these songs. Amen.